Thanks for listening to The Gist. If you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. It's Wednesday, April 19th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Fox News agreed to a huge settlement with voting equipment maker Dominion. How huge? Here's Fox media correspondent Howard Kurtz with lack of detail. A Dominion lawyer gave reporters a dollar figure for the segment, but I have not been able to independently confirm that. This was after the Dominion lawyer announced that it was $787.5 million on the courthouse steps, after Kurtz's colleague Neil Cavuto announced it was $787.5 million on Fox's air, and after Murdoch-owned publication The Wall Street Journal reported the figure to be $787.5 million. Do let us know when you nail it down for sure, Howie. The question is, a question I've heard is, why would Dominion have settled now? It seemed, in fact, this was the reporting at a pretrial discovery, that every ruling was going against Fox. Perhaps you, like me, heard speculation and previews of the trial with many a legal expert, in fact, a unanimous chorus of legal experts, as far as I could tell, saying, Fox is in really bad shape. Fox could lose the $1.6 billion they were being sued for. The question then is, so why did Dominion take $787.5 million? I can confirm. So in this part of the show, I'd like to just lay out the economics of the decision so that you understand it. And then we'll talk to an actual media correspondent who does know things, David Folk and Flick of NPR, for the rest of the show. So $787 million now, or $787 million in the hand, is probably worth a questionable $1.6 billion in the bush. Remember, if a jury gives a large award, the injured party doesn't get that amount transferred to his or her bank account forthwith. The previously largest libel settlement, and it still is the largest libel award, I should say, against Alex Jones, was recently awarded by a few courts. Adam, together, it's over a billion dollars that Jones owes, but Jones's victims are not going to be seeing that money anytime soon. And so if you can secure an actual check today, there's always an incentive to do so. And not just based on the uncertainty of ever getting the money, but the time value of money. So right now we're in a time of pretty high, very high interest rates and very high inflation. So this means that if it takes the court system five or even 10 years to actually finally force the award and make sure that the amount awarded by a jury is the amount that plaintiffs receive, there's a calculation to be made. At current rates of inflation, $787 million in 10 years would be worth $1.3 billion at the current rate of inflation, which is uh, a little over 5%. So let's, let's say inflation comes down a little. Well, then you could calculate it this way. A very safe investment vehicle of $787 million would still yield $1.1, $1.2 billion over a decade. And a decade is how long the actual award might take to get transferred to one's bank account. 
Now, why would Dominion take 1.1 or 1.2 billion? Couple reasons. There's always an uncertainty discount. You never know how a jury's going to decide. You could start getting bad rulings from the court, a bad day of testimony, a bad juror giving you the stink eye. It is a lot better to lock in a huge sum, even if it's discounted, say, at 25% for uncertainty. And remember, the $1.6 billion they were suing for, that is a tactic where you anchor at a very high price. There is really no law that says how much you can ask for. So what lawyers or negotiators will typically do is they figure out what's a feasible amount that you might get and then tack on 30% or maybe 50% to that. So maybe Dominion thought, oh, you know, if the judge is favorable and if the jury's favorable, maybe we could get a billion. All right, add 50% to that. All right, one and a half billion. And then a lawyer might say, that sounds like too round a number, say 1.6. But anyway, maybe Dominion was only hoping for the billion to begin with. And think about this. Think about who Dominion is. Dominion is owned by an investment firm called Staple Street Capital. They at least control most of Dominion. And in 2020, Staple Street Capital valued all of Dominion at $200 million. That came out of uh, documents from this very case. So by taking $787 million, you're taking almost four times the value of the entire worth of the company. What are you gonna do? Hold out for six or seven times the value? I mean, this evokes the old Wall Street dictum about pigs getting slaughtered. Taking almost $800 million will get everyone at State Street Capital and everyone with any amount of ownership stake in Dominion a big, big return. But turning down $800 million and somehow eventually losing the case, which could happen, that'll get everyone fired or if not fired, shamed, sort of ruined, psychologically at least. The voices who wanted Dominion to press on weren't those with a big financial stake in the flourishing of Dominion voting systems. They had a big stake in the flourishing of democracy, they would tell you, and fair enough. But that wasn't what the trial was about. A bigger verdict, a more embarrassing trial to Fox, was never supposed to be an avenue to perform a civic EKG followed by a defibrillation on the body politic. Fox being bloodied might feel satisfying to anyone who ever fume-watched Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson, but it really wasn't going to reform the most popular name in news. It is the populist that makes them popular more than the other way around, as I spoke of yesterday, and as I will speak of with my guest, David Folkenflik. So it's a patented gist entire show conversation, which is great. This is the debrief I wanted to have with the person I most wanted to have it with. NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik up next. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore 
with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. So as you have heard, Fox News will be paying Dominion $787.5 million. That's not an insignificant amount, even to Rupert Murdoch and the most trusted name in news. And now the most trusted name for GIST listeners, friend of the GIST and NPR media correspondent, David Folkenflick joins us. And by friend of the GIST, I mean, the GIST has been to the Folkenflicks for a barbecue and the GIST would like to invite the Folkenflicks to a barbecue at the GIST's house if, if uh, Mr. Folkenflick would be so obliged. I, I believe in B's, B's and Q's. <laughs> Very good. So let us talk about this in two ways. One, I want to ask you a bunch of questions about the facts, and then I want to ask you about the implications. Is this amount of money going to hurt Fox as a business? No, this is not pocket change. This is an enormous amount of money. This is more than the Murdochs have ever paid uh, for any kind of, settle any kind of scandal, which is what this truly is. This is a, a, you know, a punch to the solar plexus, or should be. Uh, And financially, it's the kinds of things you have to answer to. You have to disclose this as a material financial event, you know, in your financial filings uh, for the SEC because it's a publicly traded company. Uh, And it's not, by the way, the end of the money that will be spent on this. They've got a lawsuit from a former producer for Maria Bartiromo and Tucker Carlson uh, pending who alleges, among other things, that Fox's lawyers tried to induce her to lie uh, for this very lawsuit. But there are much bigger lawsuits. Uh, To be honest, before Dominion stepped up to the plate, Smartmatic, another election tech company, which was the subject of repeated uh, allegations that it was involved in some sort of vast conspiracy, often with Dominion, to cheat then-President Donald Trump of the elections, they filed before Dominion. Uh, in early 2021. And they their case is for an even gaudier number, $2.7 billion. And I think you're going to see shareholder lawsuits against Fox for the following reason. First, you've seen it before when there were these incredible um, allegations that surrounded uh, former Fox chairman Roger Ailes of sexual harassment. I believe you and I talked about that on this very program. You know, Fox not only had to pay Ailes to go away, uh, Ailes, who denied these charges until his death. Fox not only had to pay the woman who brought the lead allegation, Gretchen Carlson, 20 million bucks and paid a lot of other women who made allegations against Ailes and Bill O'Reilly had allegations, other allegations of other stars there. But they had to pay your shareholders because they said, look, this this was uh, malfeasance. This was uh, a failure to exercise proper corporate oversight over this key property. Uh, and they had to pay it also after this uh Incredible scandal involving the hacking into voicemail messages and emails uh, of people in in the UK. They had to pay shareholders off. So I think you're going to see a lot of uh, folks file here. It wouldn't surprise me if the total cost for this exceeded a billion dollars for Fox. Huh. This is a huge financial acknowledgement of wrongdoing. Yeah, you wrote a book about the UK settlement, a book called Murdoch's World. I'm staring at it on my shelf. What was the exposure there? God, uh... I think it totaled up more than $200 million, but there were associated costs. Like you had to factor in the fact that um, they had to close down the news of the world. 
And that that cost a lot of money. They had to pay out a lot of folks. They had to then pay out, uh, I think it might have been $140 million to shareholders. Like there was a lot of money associated with that. But they actually had a far greater cost for that one. And here's what it was. They uh, had... 40% stake in this enormous broadcasting outfit called Sky in Britain, and it has holdings in Europe and actually in a bunch of continents around the world. And they were on the cusp of a transaction valued at $14 billion to take over all of Sky. They had been controlling it. They wanted it outright. This was a well-run business making real money, a satellite TV provider, both content and, you know, the, the monthly subscribers just like here. And the British government was on the cusp of doing this. And part of the hacking scandal was the extent to which the British government and and law enforcement were enthralled to the Murdochs and their their British subsidiaries uh, because of the ways in which they exercised their journalistic influence to help people get power. And when the British public had an understanding of what the scandals were, the Murdochs had that kicked down the can and delayed and delayed. And when Rupert Murdoch finally decided to sell much of his entertainment holdings to the Disney Corporation, they ultimately, instead of being able to hold on to Sky, had to disgorge their 40% and sell that to Comcast. So the real cost was this enormously profitable, more forward-looking business uh, was lost to them as a result of that. So that was uh, really, in some ways, uh, although they made very good money off it, that was a loss to, in their minds, worth billions. Yeah. So this is why I raised that other large settlement they had to pay. That was an example, different kinds of bad journalism, but bad journalism forcing Murdoch, the Murdochs to pay, having enormous costs. This is an example of bad journalism, broadly defined, having enormous costs. Are we to conclude that even taking that into account, it just shows how much the revenue is if these costs can be absorbed? Or are we to conclude that maybe the Murdoch family has been engaged in a miscalculation, that they keep making these mistakes, they keep uh, having to pay $100 million settlements, but they keep not learning or they keep on keeping on? I guess I would approach it slightly differently. I would say there's something fundamental to the way in which Rupert Murdoch conceives of journalism and his contempt for the standards that most journalists and most uh, major news organizations uh, at least publicly aspire to and acknowledge and, and, you know, fallibly fall short of, but then try to remedy. And that, or at least give lip service to and fund uh, journalism schools with these ideals emblazoned on their crests, for instance. Sure. But like, yeah. even if we're not cynical about everybody in journalism, part of the problem is what do you do when you fall short? Mm-hmm. And because we're all of our news organizations are going to make mistakes. R- Roger Ailes used to boast to me on, on the very few occasions that we speak, you know, Fox News, we haven't had to do corrections like CNN and The New York Times. But The answer is that shouldn't have been a badge of honor. The idea they never did corrections. Like I came up with three stories that they did, one of which I exposed that were absolutely false from front to start and and others that that were sort of gently acknowledged as wrong because they were of no consequence whatsoever, but they were still wrong. Right. Right. But the thing is, is like, did Fox ever go back and say, actually, after what was it, 18 investigations of Benghazi, it turns out that 3,500 hours of our broadcasting was incorrect. 
No, they're never going to no. do that. You know, they that's hired, never going to. They hired Trey Gowdy. In they fact. Try, hired <laughs> Trey Gowdy, who actually turns out to be at times one of the more reasonable voices. You know, and and the Murdochs, when confronted by journalistic principle, pause to say, "Is this going to hurt us?" You know, would it be better just to move on? And Murdoch is one of the least contemplative figures you'll meet, you know, not racked by uh, agony over self-doubt or self-recrimination. And so, you know, dwelling a lot on the idea of, you know, doing some uh, David Carr style reconstruction of what went wrong, you know, as The New York Times did for Jason Blair and Judy Miller and other things uh, would not appeal to him. Yeah. I remember I was reporting on Bill O'Reilly, and at that time, and maybe a couple of years afterwards, for years, he would say, we've never had to issue a correction, even though many a story was proven to be just demonstrably false, including him claiming that he never met me when I sat in his office and interviewed him. So this seems to be- And that, and that they had never done a correction. Right? Like, that was wrong, too. <laughs> But it does seem to be, I don't know, maybe it indicates that while Fox and CNN, just to take an example, well-known example, are ostensibly engaged in the same enterprise, they're really not. I think there are journalists at Fox, and I think there are a number of journalists who try hard to you know, do a good job, fair-minded reporting, occasionally break news, although they're not really known for that. Um, you know, that's just not the point of the enterprise. And it's not even the second point of the enterprise. You know, Fox, as we've reported for years and has been confirmed uh, in vivid detail by the revelations that have come forward in the pretrial part of the Dominion case until the settlement announced yesterday. Fox is a business enterprise and it uses a strongly partisan and ideological approach that is roughly coincides with the outlook of its primary owner to propel its business interests by ensuring it has great influence uh, with key figures in government. And you've seen that in the three countries in which he's most present, his native Australia, the UK, and the US. And you saw ways in which his embrace of Trump, that is Murdoch's embrace of Trump through Fox, as well as the New York Post, one Murdoch, certain kinds of business advantages. The Disney deal, which is, you know, Fox and Disney are basically direct competitors in about 74 different ways, you know, could have easily been held up by antitrust concerns. It was waved through with the Matador defense, right? Uh, if you think about the fact that uh, the sale of Time Warner uh, at that time to AT&T uh, Time Warner, of course, the parent company of CNN, was held up as an antitrust concern by the very same Justice Department under Trump that failed to lift a finger on the Disney deal. It just tells you that there are just different imperatives in play. Yeah. Murdoch wanted, you know, a spanner thrown in the works on that, and you saw it happen. And there are other things as well. But he had real contempt for Trump. And yet he said, this is a business alliance. Let's do it. So you have business first. You have ideology and partisan uh, imperatives driving that, some of which he believes strongly in. And then like a distant, probably not third, but fifth is the nature of journalism at its core. Journalism is useful because it attracts a kind of viewer that won't, doesn't want to only listen to talk radio, but uh, have some news and update. In addition, uh, news is useful for advertisers who might not say, hey, I really want to be attached to uh, Mark Levin and Janine Pirro. They might say, uh, I want to be at a, in a slightly tonier neighborhood, and 
the patna of news allows for that. Yeah, I want to ask, I want to break that down in two ways. One is your, your thesis in that answer was that of the Murdoch's imperatives and why they use Fox is to get ancillary business interests advanced. I'll say stipulated, but even if they didn't, even if they didn't have that sway, it still makes them, those networks, not the New York Post, but Fox News, makes them an enormous amount of money, right? More than their competitors, right? Oh, far and away, more than their major competitors combined. You know, Fox is throwing off billions of dollars, not just of revenues, but of profits every year. Billions and billions of dollars. Fox, I may get the numbers wrong, but I think the last time I checked, Fox was getting five or six dollars per person from every cable provider per month. So if you think that basic cable, it's now down to about 70 million households, used to be a lot higher, but let's say 70 million. Let's pretend it's only five bucks. I think it's significantly above that. But so you're talking about $350 million a month, a month before they've sold a single ad. You know, that's a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, But let me ask you, and I asked Brian Stelter this too. Why do you acknowledge that there are large, there are people at Fox who are real journalists and there are large parts of the programming day where they do real journalism? Why? Is that, I mean, I have a few theories. Maybe it's like the fig leaf theory. Maybe it's to give them legitimacy when it comes to, you know, trying to spread false election claims. Maybe it's just easier to do real journalism than to concoct these alternative stories. So why does Fox still do what seems like real journalism or employ a lot of people who do real journalism? I think even on the news shows, you see an extraordinary amount of uh, talking to people, many of whom are not journalists, but people with uh, a stake, a point of view, an interest, a provocative take. So the amount of original reporting happening on Fox is relatively limited, mm-hmm. and much of it is about stuff playing out in relatively open view. What CNN does for all of its flaws and faults and for all of the ch- talk and debate and chatter that happens on CNN involves an infrastructure that is far broader, deeper, wider, and more far-flung that has the journalistic uh, muscle and knowledge to snap into shape if anything happens or to do more enterprise work. And Fox just doesn't do that. It's just much cheaper to do what's essentially a talk radio model of having people talk about the news. They do have reporters that their ranks of prominent journalists anyway have really narrowed And it narrowed in part after the 2020 race. They got rid of a bunch of their digital journalists. You know, they got rid of two of their most prominent political editors. Uh, This was not an accident. Um, You know, the brain room tried its best to protect uh, Fox from getting these things wrong about Dominion and and sort of falling into this, these, you know, just wild-eyed, crazy conspiracy theories that didn't seem plausible in the moment. But they didn't rely on those folks they charged to do this research. They were paying to do this very thing in this moment of crisis. Were those two political editors, Chris Dyerwalt and who? Bill, Bill Salmon? Salmon was Bill the Salmon. Washington managing yeah. editor. And not exactly a, a flaming liberal. He had come no. from the Washington Times. And they were pushed out because executives at Fox chafed at their ultimately accurate call that Arizona went to Biden. 
There was that. I think they were frustrated that they were part of the leadership team of the decision desk that wouldn't review or reverse that call uh, for Biden. The key call of Arizona for Biden in election night 2020 was in many ways the you know the proximate cause for all of this because mm-hmm. afterwards uh, you know Fox viewers didn't want to hear that Biden had won Arizona Fox viewers didn't want to hear that Biden won Arizona from Fox and Fox viewers sure didn't want to hear that Biden won Arizona first on Fox they didn't want Fox to be taking the first steps to be the ones to do that and after that you you have sort of compensatory making it up to viewers for 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 a couple months afterwards that you know, led Fox to the bottom of the barrel in terms of credibility on this. And we'll be back in a moment with NPR's David Folkenflik to speak about how Fox might change and who we non-Fox fans blame for the existence of such a prominent news outlet that delivers something other than hmm, the whole truth. First taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. Now, when you laid out, for instance, the machinations behind the firing of Salmon and Steyerwalt and many of the other revelations about what went on and the pressure, uh, I referenced it, that pressure was, uh, the pressure being felt so as to not lose viewers to Newsmax. This was all gleaned from the discovery process of, because of this trial, how much more were we expecting, were you, were the many members of the media covering this trial, how much more actual facts were we expecting there to be revealed in the process of the trial? Now, I know you put Rupert Murdoch on the stand. He could say anything. I know you put Tucker Carlson or executives on the stand. Um, They could blurt out anything. Also, just the optics of those people actually testifying in court, that has a value in terms of really clarifying things for the public who might not have been reading print or listening to NPR pieces about it. But that is my question. Not having a trial, how many facts do you think, or does it rob us of any facts? Well, you know, we've received probably thousands of pages of memos and Transcripts of depositions, which, as your listeners know, is really just people being questioned under oath by lawyers for the other side most of the time uh, in in 
in ways that end up revealing things that maybe people didn't want to reveal. Uh, and we've just seen so many emails and text messages and internal conversations of people speaking privately. And let's be fair. No institution really wants all that revealed. Mm -hmm. Like nobody looks good in these circumstances. And, you know, Fox would say when I'd sort of reporting about little preliminary ones, oh, this is cherry picked. And it said that pretty much until almost the day that this was settled about different revelations. But actually, yeah. it's very hard to cherry pick thousands of pages of documents. Yeah, but that's great. That word, that very phrase cherry picked was omnipresent in their defense of what they did. Right. And it yeah. turned out that actually, you know, the things that. Let me give you one example where they said this cherry picked. I was able to break a story early on by talking to sources about the emergence of a uh, an email that was a plea from a Fox News executive, Fox News employees, what I should say, uh, who had said, for the love of God, let's please keep Janine Pirro off the air. Uh, this was just in the days after the election. She's like, she, she's trolling the the, the you know, far reaches of conspiracy theory blogs and QAnon or what have you. And you know, it wouldn't be responsible. And indeed, mm -hmm. she didn't have her show that Saturday. Fox said to me, you know, look, this was just a producer, junior producer talking to a friend. I think they said she was a female producer, you know, and uh, let's not single her out here. I, I want to get the details right. And it's been, a it's been months. But basically, they were kind of saying this wasn't you know, it, it, this wasn't a particularly weighty or consequential thing. And by the way, she didn't have her show because it was preempted for election night specials. Janine didn't, right. None of that was really true. Mm. I mean, you talk about cherry picking. Actually, no, this was uh, an executive who I think was in charge of weekend programming. And um, he was saying this and they kept her off the air because they didn't trust that she would push back against certain kinds of allegations that were being made that they didn't trust. So, you know, it was actually worse than than what Fox was saying, not better. And that actually ended up surfacing. What I would say in terms of your real question, Mike, is that so much was redacted by Fox. There would be these huge chunks of black text in key elements of depositions and exchanges among key people in all this that Fox asserted was necessary to protect journalistic privilege, although actually they had had an earlier chance to list everything that was being held out for journalistic privilege and they hadn't listed it. So under the court rubric, you can't kind of double dip like that. You have to cite that that's about source work, essentially, if you're going to invoke that privilege. And additionally, they were claiming stuff that when things were unredacted by the judge or released more subsequently, clearly had nothing except they were embarrassing for Fox. They were mortifying because it showed the truth of what was being said behind closed doors. And a lot of stuff remained redacted. And I think that that stuff would have come into play and been opened up. Uh, ultimately, not necessarily 100% of it, but most of it, because then they can draw upon it for the trial. The judge at one point was going back and forth with uh, one of the t lead lawyers for Dominion uh, because they were arguing over some of these redactions. And th the lawyer said, as almost an aside, Your Honor, look, as one example of this, we've tried to have almost no redactions except for information like revealing personal emails or, or home addresses or, or things like that. Fox has objected to every single exhibit that we have sought to put into evidence in this trial. So every single piece of paper that says Mike wrote this email to Dave and therefore we want to submit this, Fox would say, we object. You're not really supposed to object to everything. 
You're supposed to have grounds for objecting. So the judge said, is this true? To Dan Webb, possibly the most feared corporate litigator in all of the United States. He's the chairman of Winston and Strom. Um, Fox's lawyer. The Fox's chief lawyer. And he says, I can't believe that that's true. And the judge kept looking at him. He paused. He said, well, let me check with my colleagues. And he turns and looks and talks to one colleague, talks to the other. They apparently nod. And he says, I'm being told that is true. We have objected to everything. And the judge is like, that can't happen. So there's an enormous amount of information that Fox was trying to see prevent from anyone seeing the light of day. And NPR and the New York Times actually were involved in certain kinds of legal pleadings in front of the court to try to open things up more greatly. So the answer is, I think there was a fair amount more. And I think, to be honest, the stuff that was redacted pound for pound was much more likely to be reputationally damaging for Fox than the stuff that was revealed because they took the trouble to redact it. Right. So what we know is just the stuff they wanted us to know or allowed us to know. They could tolerate us knowing. Yes. And even that stuff was extremely reputationally damaging. Right. Except to the current and potential Fox viewer, right? I mean, as I think about this, I know there was a hope. And this hope, as expressed by many others in the media, I'll quote two headlines today. The Fox lawsuit was never going to save America. That was in The Atlantic and in The Intercept. Peter Moss, Dominion was never going to save our democracy from Fox News. How was this ever even a realistic hope? How could anyone have even legitimately expressed that hope, knowing what we know about why Fox is popular, which is that the democracy, the demos, the populace loves this programming? And was a trial ever going to get in the way of that? I think that the only way that Fox viewers will grapple with this is if it's presented to them on Fox. Mm -hmm. And I think you've seen a resolute and impressive uniformity of essentially ignoring this uh, lawsuit and the issues raised about Fox's handling of it uh, to not 100% degree, but to a near complete degree. Right. And in addition, you know, people say, well, Fox viewers will never know about this anywhere else. I'm guessing Fox viewers actually read other sources of material, not all of which are going to be right wing, Mm -hmm. not all of which are going to be Fox friendly. And the reason that, that you know that right wing rivals to Fox are unlikely to ding Fox on this Uh, is that they're probably the farther right you go, the more likely you are to be exposed to the very same kinds of issues. But I think some Fox viewers will encounter this stuff. And those that are most troubled by it have probably already started to be peel off already. I mean, either because of the controversies or because of the uh, tone and subjects that Fox has adopted. I mean, Tucker Carlson, even in the midst of all this, has continued to promote the idea that the January 6th siege of Congress was harmless. Yeah. And concurrently, that it was orchestrated by Antifa and the FBI. So, you know, these are completely baseless things. But since he's not pointing to specific individuals or specific corporate non-governmental institutions. There's no one withstanding to sue. There's nobody that's going to sue him for it. So, right, so right. you know, if you're not offended by that... You know, you're going to stick around if you if you are, you're not going to. And those are the kinds of people who are more likely to be affected by this. But one of the genius elements of Fox that Rupert Murdoch sort of embraces, but that Roger Ailes made as part of their formula from the outset was to so distrust, to discredit anything that the mainstream media that is anyone else in the media says about 
any politician you like, the Republican Party, Donald Trump, and particularly Fox News itself. Yeah. So, you know, they've been inoculated against the idea that Fox News itself, you know, has proven to be unworthy of your trust because Fox has you know, drummed into part of its patter as a routine basis that everybody is lying about you and us and them. So $787 million, as you said, is not nothing. They will be perhaps chastened, but how? How do you predict this will change Fox's methods in the future? I think that they will be much more careful about not making specific factual allegations that are unsubstantiated and defamatory, as they did here, at least for a little while. I think there are going to be lawyers, and if it's not just only Fox's lawyers. You almost would imagine that Fox's uh, defamation insurers are putting their lawyers and embedding them in some way, right? At least figuratively. You know, They will be thinking about this for a long time. I think you will see some clearinghouse I'd be very look. It's it's foolish to speculate, but you know, if you had money, you'd say, you know, is Maria Bartiromo going to last? Yeah, I think she'll last at least until they settle this Smartmatic case, you know, because you want her inside the tent for that. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, smart, but yeah. I don't know that you're going to. I mean, I think she controls something like 17 hours of programming across Fox Business and Fox News. I don't think you're going to see anything like that. I think she's going to be thanked for her time and moved away. Are we going to see, you know, Jeanine Pirro remain on The Five, one of Fox's most popular shows? Maybe. Uh, Are you going to see, you know, you could conceive of a world, although I don't think it'll happen, where Sean Hannity was no longer there. You know, when they got rid of Bill O'Reilly, people were like, oh, my God, this is impossible. It's a disaster. Tucker Carlson, who had shows that people consider largely failures on PBS and CNN and MSNBC. Yeah. He's a runaway hit. Right. He's getting better ratings than O'Reilly ever did. And so when like, they got rid of Greta Van Susteren, was it Ailes who said I could replace her with a dead, was it no. woodchuck, hedgehog? There was a raccoon, I think. And he also- uh, Which woodland animal? But it turned out to be correct. And Laura Ingram no, was no, that no, woodland no, animal. I no, think, no, no. I think that we're going all the way back. Mike, I could be wrong here, but you and okay. I have been doing this a long time. <laughs> I think this goes back to your days uh, at On the Media or something, because uh-huh. I think this involved Paula Zahn. Okay, and then then they also gave a quote saying, uh, you know, you you know something about how you can always uh, put a new coat of paint on an outhouse, but it's still an outhouse. Wow, that's you know, like that was put out as an official statement by Fox. You know, so it's like, what are these guys doing? But they did fine with Tucker. You know, it's a question of can you? you, They did fine when they when Ailes forced out Glenn Beck, who thought he was bigger than the network and didn't need to be subject to its rules. And he was their greatest conspiracy theorist. And Ailes says too much for us. It's too crazy. It's too racist and particularly anti-Semitic for us. Uh, I don't want this. Roger Ailes is saying that, you know, the person's really out there. He created the five. The five does incredible ratings, you know, and, uh, you know, all you have to do is pay people to talk out of that. They groomed Jesse Waters. You know, Jesse Waters is now at seven o'clock instead of what had been an hour of news. And so, you know, Waters is ginning up all these kind of outlandish things and foolishness. Um, So they've shown that they can swap people in there and make things work. So I don't think they fear that in the way that they once did. You know, the real question is, are you going to see somebody at the top of Fox who actually cares about the idea of whether they're accurate and whether news should be a part of it. Uh, I did an interview for a story today 
uh, with Frank Sesno, the former uh, CNN Washington bureau chief. And he said, you know, if news is going to be your middle name, it's got to be part of your formula as well. David Folkenflick is NPR's media correspondent and author of Murdoch's World, The Last of the Old Media Empires. David, I'm going to say news is your middle name. And thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, man. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the GIST's producer. Joel Patterson is the GIST's senior producer and QuickTime turnaround artist. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash the GIST. And thanks for listening. first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com